0: Today's scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 45. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your re- relative, is going to have a child in her own old age, and she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear but why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. This is God's word.
1: If you've been with us the last couple weeks, uh, we've been looking at the series, just going through the the old passages of Scripture that we grew up with, to, to really relearn them because we need to relearn. We need to revisit Scripture, and uh, we've been looking at these passages of Advent, uh, the, the the narrative of the birth of Jesus. And Advent means what? Advent means coming. This is an anticipation of the coming of Christ, and that's why throughout the weeks leading up to Christmas, we tend to revisit annually stories that bring us back to the birth of Christ to teach us who is Jesus and why did he come. And uh, last week we looked at the narrative of Joseph, and today we're looking at Mary. And both the narratives of Joseph and Mary teach us what happens when what? When Jesus comes near to us, when God comes near, when Jesus enters into our lives. And we said oftentimes that when Jesus comes into our lives, what happens? There's trouble. There's there's fear. There's unrest. There are three points we're going to look at today. First, uh, the, the angel's message to Mary. Secondly, angel's message to Mary is angel's message to us. Secondly, we have uh, Mary's response, which really is what our response should be. And lastly, Mary's song. We have the message, the response, the song. First, we're going to look at the message, the angel's message to Mary. In verse 26, we have the angel Gabriel. And uh, he goes to Mary, who is a virgin. And he says to Mary, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. He says, do not be afraid. You will be with child and you're going to give birth to a son. And you are going to give him the name Jesus. And in verse 31, he says, his name is Jesus. Jesus means Savior. Jesus means rescuer. Verse 32, he will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. Verse 33, he will reign forever. His kingdom will never end. Verse 35, he is the Holy One. He will be called the Son of God. He says that this is the power of God. He says to Mary, the presence of God, God's own spirit will come upon you. What's the message? And here it is. The Savior the king, the holy one, the son of God, the mighty, the high, the almighty, the highest has become a child. He's become the lowest. He's become the weakest. He's become the most vulnerable. He's become killable. And why? It's to save us. That's his name, to save us from our sins. His name is Jesus. That's what his name means. In other words, uh, God is far greater than we ever could have imagined. But he came down. And when he came down, that's because we are more sinful than we ever imagined. You see that? So right off the bat, what's the message? Do you want to become great? Do you want to have power? you got to stop seeking the heights. you got to stop climbing over one another to seek the heights. You have to seek the depths. You have to come down. That's what you have to do. Uh, A mere teacher can't teach you that. A mere religious leader can't tell you that with authority. Can't do that, right? Buddhism, these Eastern religions, they tell you what? You can't limit this concept of God, right? A Jewish rabbi, a Muslim imam will say what? God is too great. How dare you try to tell us that God has limited himself? God is too great to be limited. He can't be weak. All the religions of the world will tell you that God cannot be limited, that God cannot be weak, God can never be low, but Christianity says the exact opposite. God has chosen to be weak. God has chosen to limit himself. God has chosen to come down. He's willing to come down, and that's why he's so great. Revelation chapter 5, all the way to the end of the Bible, the author, John, he sees what? He sees a throne and a scroll. And he's weeping. Why? Why is he weeping? He's weeping because there's no one worthy to open up the scroll. And so he's weeping. But then he's told that, see, the lion of Judah, the king, has triumphed. And he is able And so he looks to the lion of Judah, and he sees a lamb. It's so confusing. And this lamb, it's not even just a, a lamb. It's a lamb that's all messed up. It's a lamb that looks as if it's been slain. So what is it? Is Jesus a lion, or is he a lamb? And that's the point. He's both. Jesus is both. He's great because he's a lion and a lamb. He's great because he's a mighty and he's low. He's great because he's powerful and he's weak. That's why he's great. On one hand, uh, we worship the king because he's great. On the other hand, we love to worship the king because he's humble, because he became weak. That's why he's great. Now, why do we love Jesus? Why do we love this king because he's humble? In fact, we're naturally drawn toward humble people. We're not naturally drawn towards arrogant people. Now, think about this. There are lots of babies in our congregation and uh, when, you, when all of you at one point come and talk to a baby, how do you talk to a baby? Do you talk politics with a baby? Do you sit in? Do you talk uh, about uh, science with a baby? No, you don't do that. You come up and you contort your face and you Google, you know, you speak kind of baby language, right? You make faces and you make sounds. You're, what you're really doing because babies are drawn to that. You know, why? It's because you've come down to the baby. A baby can't communicate with you at your level. Uh, you have to become you have to become a baby, right? You have to make the baby sounds and make the baby faces and, and when a baby cries, what do you do? Do you reason with the baby? No. It's up to you to figure out. Uh, the baby's heart. It's up to you to figure out the baby's needs. It's up to you to figure out what the baby wants. And babies are drawn to that. Babies instinctively cling to that. But a baby will never be able to talk politics with you. A baby will never be able to talk science with you. A baby will never be able to talk philosophy and theory with you. That's the nature of being a baby, right? A baby will never be able to rise to you the very In the same way, another example, you can speak into someone, you know, if you are in your normal state, you can speak into someone who's depressed, someone who's down. But when you're depressed, rarely can you speak into the joy of somebody, right? You actually need somebody to come down and speak to you at your level. You're drawn to that. Why? Because The power of the higher person, the power of a healthier person. Uh, There's tremendous power in his ability to enter into the world of the lower person, to enter into the world of a broken person. That's why we go to doctors to be healed right? Doctors, we assume them to be healthy. They have a power to come down, right, and heal. A power to come down and communicate what you need to be healed. That's the power of the, that's the, the a part really of the nature of the greatness, or the, the greatness of somebody. It's the, na- the nature of the lower person uh, to be unable to enter the world of the higher person. It's the part of the nature of its lowness, What's the what's the angel saying? The holy one, the great one, the almighty God has come down. Jesus is coming down. And does it come down to royalty? Does it come down to a throne? Does it come down through a queen? Through our greatness? No. Through Mary, an illiterate, impoverished uneducated, weak person, a woman in a manger. Why? Because sinners are unable to be holy on their own. They cannot rise on their own. So what happened? Holiness had to come down. Un- the unselfish can, ent- can understand and enter the world of someone who is selfish, right? It's the nature of someone who's unselfish, a part of the nature right? But the selfish will never be able to understand an unselfish person. A holy person can understand and come down to sin, but a sinner will never be able to understand holiness on his own. John chapter 1, the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. see, So greatness had to enter the world of the lesser. The Almighty had to enter the world of the weak. The Holy God had to enter the world of sinners. This is a gift. What's a gift? A gift is always something that's really a reflection of what you need. We're entering into that season of giving, right? And every one of us, the people who know you the best, the people who know your heart, understand your need, understand what you need. And so gifts are really a, a reflection of what they think, the giver thinks you need the most. That's really what it is. So let's say for Christmas, I get a couple gifts, right? Uh, my first gift is, let's say, it's facial lotion, right? A uh, second gift is uh, running shoes. Maybe a third gift is a nice sweater, let's say, or a nice suit. What are they implying? They're implying that you have dry skin, right? They're implying that, hey, you're getting a little round, right? You need to exercise, right? You need to run, right? Uh, they're implying that, hey, you need to dress a little better, right? So they give you a nice suit or ni- a nice, nice clothes, right? In any gift, what is there? There is a giving and there's a receiving. And so receiving or accepting these gifts, applying these gifts, if, you, if I wear that sweater, if I use that face lotion, to apply those things is to mean that you have to accept certain things about yourself. You can't accept gifts, without accepting that it means certain things about yourself, God gave us his son as a gift by sheer grace, grace alone. God emptied himself by sheer compassion and grace alone. What does that mean? That we are so sinful that nothing less than God himself could save us, and he did. That's the meaning of Christmas, and he did. You see? This is the beauty of Christmas, the mini unraveling of the gospel, that Jesus, the Holy One, Jesus greater than David, the greater king, the king who is great, and we, he came down, and we we are so sinful and so broken, and he is so loving, and he is so gracious. On one hand, we are so sinful, it had to be God. It took God to come. You can't change on your own. You can't go to God on your own. And yet, on the other hand, God is so loving and so gracious and so faithful and so compassionate that He chose to come. He wanted to come on His own. Now, Mary, she didn't get it at first, right? She didn't get it until she came to Elizabeth. Uh, She wasn't filled with joy at first. Uh, That joy comes later after seeing Elizabeth. And and the angel says, in verse 36, uh, even Elizabeth, your relative, is touched by God. This barren woman is now with child. To be barren in the ancient times is to be outcast, to be cursed. But she says, even Elizabeth is blessed. She is with child. Go see Elizabeth. She's received this blessing by grace alone. So see Elizabeth. Verse 39 to 46, Mary goes to see Elizabeth. And Elizabeth knows. The moment she sees Mary, she knows. And she explains to Mary. Now, Elizabeth knows Mary. And she shows her this honor that Mary's never heard before, This Mary's never experienced before. In verse 42, she says, Blessed are you among all women, and blessed is this child that you will bear. It's a striking honor. What an honor. What's this like? Mary, she's been given this gift this precious jewel in her life. It's hers. She owns it. And now when you receive something like that, this precious jewel, what do you do? And it's given to you, you go get it checked out. You need to get it validated. And so uh, Mary goes to see Elizabeth, and Elizabeth is like this jeweler, right, this gemologist. And Elizabeth takes this jewel, she sees this jewel, and she's got special... Uh, that special eyepiece, that loop, right? And she examines this jewel, and what does she see? She looks into it and she's taken aback. She's gasping for air. Why? She says, Mary, you have no idea what you have. This is the pearl of great price. This is a priceless treasure. What does she say? Verse 45, she says, what the Lord has said to you, what the Lord has said to you, the Lord's presence has come upon you. Verse 43, why am I so favored? Mary is the mother of my Lord. In other words, the Lord has said that Mary is the mother of my Lord. In other words, the person in your womb is every bit As much the Lord is every bit bit as much the Lord as the Father in heaven. The baby, this baby that you're carrying is the Lord. In other words, the Lord has sent the Lord who is in you. Mary, do you get it? Do you get it? This is a priceless treasure. The infinite has become finite, the immortal has become mortal, the omnipotent has become impotent. Do you see that? The powerful, the ultimate power has become. Weak. Our dream, our hope has become real. The holy, the untouchable, the set apart has become personal. And so the impossible has become possible. You who are cursed are blessed. Elizabeth, she's grasped hold of this truth, and this truth just shaped her, just completely changed her. He says, she says, I'm favored too. I'm favored too because I see this. I know this truth. I get this truth. I believe. That's the message, that the mighty one has become low, has become weak. Now, what's her response? Because that's the message to us. Do you see that? Do you believe that? Mary's message, uh, Mary's response really should be our response, and we see this response. Mary does four things here that really captures the whole of her response, and if Jesus Christ is coming near in your life, that's going to be your response too. What does she do? One, she processes. She reasons. Verse 28, the angel says, greetings, the Lord is with you, and Mary responds, how? This is great, this is so amazing. This angel has come to me. Is that what she says? Count me in. Let's do it. No. Verse 29, she's greatly troubled, and she's wondered. She's wondering. That Greek word uh, to wonder is logistimai, logistimai. It's where we get the word logic. That means that upon hearing this angel, she's passionately analyzing. She's troubled, and she's processing. She's thinking it through. And so she's saying this. She's saying, this is impossible. This is, I'm a virgin. This is impossible. How is this going to happen? It's so difficult to believe. But she's thinking it through. She's processing logically. Now, Mary's a religious person, so she knows about God. She knows about God's promises. Uh, what does this mean? Though you may know, when it's difficult to understand, you need to process. You need to think through your calling. Every one of us here, if you're a Christian, you've been called by God. You need to think through that calling. You need to reason it out. You can't just dismiss it. You can't just reject it because that's not only not wise, that's unintelligent, right? If you hear something that, that is perceived and known to be truth, you need to process that truth, right? You need to think it through. Now, you can't also just rely on your feelings because why? That would be unli- unwise if you just uh, relied on your feelings because feelings always change. And feelings always conflict. And feelings are so circumstantially driven. Now, a lot of us grew up relying on feelings. And now you've been put into a position today where you're now coming back to the church. And you're processing it. Is this real? Uh, What has come to me? What is coming near to me? Verse 34, Mary says, how will this be? I mean, virgins don't give birth. This is difficult to believe. This is difficult to take in. But this is the Lord that's coming to me. This is a real experience. So on one hand, she's got tons of questions, but she's coming with such an open mind. You know that God is coming near because there's trouble. There's fear. There's suffering. There's, there's an overwhelming circumstance in your life and it requires all of your faculties, your heart and your soul and your mind. All these things are being challenged. Your will is being challenged. Everything is being challenged in your life. Every Your core values, your core beliefs. You know what you're doing? God is drawing you in. And he's starting to focus you. And you're beginning to worship. That's the seed of worship. Because what's worship? Your heart and your soul and your strength, your will. All these things are becoming focused on one thing. Now, if you focus only on the circumstance, you're going to grow up and live in anxiety. You're just going to live in anxiety for the rest of your life. If you dismiss everything and just live for the here and live for, you know, uh, it's going to be fine, then, well, you're not living in reality, right? But if through the circumstance, through the brokenness, you're starting to focus and you're saying, wait, what is this about? It's the seed of worship she says to god what she's really doing is uh uh she's, whatever's happening in her life marys recognizes that her link her intellect alone is insufficient to work this through her ability alone is not sufficient to work this through so she reasons she's thinking it through she's processing we need to process. Number two, uh, there's a humble honesty. It's not just an honesty, right? A lot of us, you know, we live in a world today, hey, I'm just going to be honest with you. We just kind of put it out there, but there's a humble honesty. That's what it requires. Verse 34, she says, how will this be? There's doubt. There's fear. Then verse 35, the angel explains everything, and she trusts. She says to God, on one hand, I don't understand this. Friends, you know what that is? Uh, That's that's prayer. She says, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't get this. She's asking. She's, she's got doubts, honest doubts, but she's got an honest humility. It's not a fake humility. It's not oftentimes we come and we kind of act humble, right? She's got, a, she's got a real humility, a genuine humility, an honest humility, but she's got honest doubts, and so she's asking questions, but when she asks questions, she's not asking with disbelief. Uh, she's a uh, because if she asked with disbelief, she would be dishonest, right? She's got a humble honesty. And so she says, I don't get this. If, but if God is really there, if God is real, I'm coming to you. And so on one hand, she admits, and we have to admit, that there's weakness. We have to admit that there's doubt. But on the other hand, she comes with hope. And she comes with openness. And uh, that means that we have to have a humility to hope and we have to have the courage to ask questions. And if you take that courage to ask questions and the humility to hope and the humility to be open, that results in an integrity that leads us to Christ, to leads us to trust. That's what it does. The third thing is uh, we need to see Elizabeth, right? So Mary processes. Mary comes with a humble honesty. But then she also goes to see Elizabeth. We need community in our lives. Mary didn't fully understand everything until she processed it in the context of community. She needed an Elizabeth to explain it to her. So on one hand, yeah, she's processing on her own. But even there, she's like, how can this be? And she's kind of taking it. and She's saying, you know what? There's a humble honesty. You know what? I'm going to trust you. There's a, there's a doubt, there's a fear, but there's a humility and an open, openness that leads her to say, I'm going to trust you. So she goes to see Elizabeth, and Elizabeth starts to explain. Because what Mary's saying is, my intelligence, we've already said this, we've already established that our intelligence and our ability is not sufficient. So yes, she's asking questions, yes, she's praying, but almost nobody in this room has ever truly gotten it without we're outside of the context of community. So if there's a spark and you're processing, you need deep community in your lives. Deep community. I said this before. Dr. Jack Miller says, you need, everyone needs a gospel posse. Not just a posse. Posse is like a term of the 90s, right? Not just a posse. I mean, he, he lived to, into the 90s, right? But he, you, know, you need close gospel community. Not just a community. If you're coming to church just for a community, you're welcome here. We embrace you. But the thing is, that's not the end. You can't make that the end. You need a gospel community in your life because no one, almost no one comes to the Lord without community. That means you can't just skip in and out of things. You can't just skip in and out of church, skip in and out of community groups, skip in and out of the Bible, skip in and out of prayer. You can't do that. You can't just skip in and out of reading books about things and then and, and fully get it. That's not how it works, right? You can't just cram like an exam and just get it. That's not how it works. And then kind of let it go after that. That's, we're kind of, as a culture, we're kind of bred to do life that way. But that's not how it works. You see, you need community. On one hand, do not be afraid to be a Mary, don't be afraid to seek after truth. You know, we live in a world where we say it's very open and challenge and ask questions, and yet we're so afraid to ask the questions that really touch at the real things in our hearts because we're so afraid to expose the deep insecurities in our hearts. We're so afraid to expose and make visible the deep things that we're afraid of. Don't be afraid to be a Mary. Don't be afraid to be honest, humbly, and ask questions. But on the other hand, don't be afraid to be an Elizabeth, right? Right? You need to be a community. Don't be afraid to speak truth. On one hand, don't seek answers with cynicism, with skepticism. That's not humble. That's not honest. That's not sober. Mary isn't dumb. You know, Mary, she's a religious woman. She knows the Bible. So she could have easily said, yeah, 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 I get it, I get it. But then she would have missed it, you see. And we have lots of people in the church today that are like that, right? Oh, yeah, 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 I heard this before. Yeah, yeah, I get it. And they kind of dismiss it. They kind of reject it because they're used to being the one who's higher. They haven't come down, you see. Mary, she's humble. And so she's open to understand what she doesn't know. You know what real fellowship is? Uh, modern church, we've taken that word and uh, because the risk of gathering has gone away. And because the laws against people like this gathering have gone away, because the penalty of gathering has gone away, and so modern fellowship has been reduced. It's kind of a kind of a sad thing, a pathetic thing. Modern fellowship today is boiled down to just watching sports games together, simply because we believe the same thing. That does, first of all, that doesn't even—that's not even congruent. They don't have to be together like that, right? It's because it actually actually points to a deeper desire to connect with people. There's this deep inner loneliness in our lives, and that's why we come. And so it's not really fellowship. It's an idolatrous feeding of ourselves, you know. The true value of fellowship is crowd learning, right? We live in an era of crowdsourcing, right, putting into things to invest, right, this true fellowship is about crowd learning, the wisdom of crowds, right? It's learning in the context of community. Community is important for uh, validation, for affirmation. I have an experience. Can you validate it for me? You see that all throughout Scripture, Acts chapter 8. You know, you have the Ethiopian eunuch who has come to this truth, and he's seeking validation, He says, hey, shouldn't I be baptized here? Can you validate me, assess me, evaluate me, right, and then baptize me? Shouldn't I be evaluated in that way? Isn't my experience real? Well, you see that all over in the Bible. Nicodemus going to Jesus, right? We all need community in our lives. And it's very important for validation, for affirmation, for confirmation. Lastly, we need to submit. There's submission. Mary says in verse 38, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you've said. Uh, You saw this with Joseph. You see this now with Mary. So basically you're seeing two different authors, two different texts in the Bible, two different gospel accounts. Mary has already been given the name to name Jesus, right? Uh, He will be named Jesus. You are going to give him the name Jesus. Uh, Naming is what parents do. It's a sign of ownership. It's a sign of authority, and yet Mary has to submit even the right to name her own child. The authority and the ownership is being surrendered. The ego has to be put down in order for that to happen because that right is being taken away from her, and yet she says, I will obey. Now, why wasn't that allowed? It's because Jesus right? They they say, the angel says, you're going to give him the name Jesus. Jesus is the first child with ultimate authority. Jesus is the only child with ultimate, ultimate power. You see that? And so Mary is submitting. Jesus is the first child to be older than his parents, in a sense. So you can't just give Jesus the name that you want to give. You know, we said said this last week. We love to give Jesus the name healer. We love to say Jesus is my healer. We love to say, help me, you are my helper. We love to call Jesus our friend. We love to call Jesus our lover. We love those things. But we have difficulty calling Jesus our king. We have difficulty calling Jesus our savior. And here we're told to name Jesus our savior. Savior from what? Our sins. We're told We're called to call Jesus the rescuer from our sins. That means your inability, your ability is not enough. Your intelligence is not enough. Your positioning is not enough. Your network and your connections are not enough. There's nothing you can do. You are down. And so the gospel calls us to come down because we are down. We are low. We are unable. And so... Uh, you know, there are people in the church who say, you know, I want to be a Christian, but does that mean I have to give up my sex life? I want to be a Christian. I want to believe. I think I'm coming to believe, but do I have to give up my lifestyle? What they're really saying is, I'm willing to surrender as long as I can still have control over my life. I mean, what right do you have to tell me how to live my life? Mary says, verse 38, right? I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. What she's saying is, yes, I'm going to be disgraced. Yes, I'm going to experience a shame above all shames in my community. I am a pregnant woman without a husband. Yes, people are going to turn their nose down to me, turn their noses away from me. Yes, I may even lose Joseph. Joseph. She knows. I'm going to lose my community. I'm going to lose, those ancient times, no internet, no cars. Your community was your life. I'm going to lose my life. That's what she's saying. I'm going to be outcast. I'm going to suffer. And I may not find vindication today. I may not find resolve today. I may not find catharsis today. But notice, notice, she doesn't say, well, I'll suffer if you help me. That's not what she says. Verse 46 to 49. I'll suffer because you came to me. She says, you are mindful of me. You, th- you are thoughtful of me. I'm always on your heart and mind. Now, Mary doesn't get everything. She doesn't understand anything. She gets that later. She kind of gets it later, but she says, may it be to me as you've said. I submit. I obey. She doesn't say, oh, you know, I'll get it once I understand everything. We have a lot of people today, I'll believe, I'll submit if you just make me understand this. Friends, if you're a parent, and uh, parents understand this the best. Parents, you know, your children at the age of like two think they know everything there is to know in the world, right? I mean, every parent here would agree that your kids think they're wise. They want to do what they want to do. They want to live the way they want to live. And that happens from like, age one and on, you know, right? That's how it is. A three-year-old will just run out anywhere. He doesn't care what dangers are out there. He thinks he knows everything there is to know in the world, right? Now, when they become teenagers, they're going to come to you, and they're going to say, well, why? Why can't I go out, right? Why can't I do this? Why do I have to practice so much? Why do I have to work so hard? Why do I have to do this? And if you just explain it to me, you know, why can't I hang out with that person? Why can't I date? why can't I date that person? If you just explain it to me, then I'll I'll listen. You're wise as a parent if you say, listen, why? Because I'm your mom, that's why. I'm your dad, that's why. That's all you need to know. God has placed me over you as an authority. I don't necessarily have to give you a reason. I mean, I'll reason with you. Of course, we're called to be. You got to reason with your children. You got to talk to your children. You got to connect with your children. But you never give off the, you should never give off the air of having to convince your child so that they will understand because they will never submit that way. What they're saying is, I have equal rights as you. How dare you tell me how to live my life? And if you start that young, you know, I'm telling you this as a brother right i'm telling you this as a brother and as a friend right now uh mary doesn't say i'll obey once i understand everything she doesn't get everything at first she's still afraid there's still wonder and yet she says i'll obey then later she gets it and there's delight you see that right friends you're never going to experience real joy until you surrender, you come to Jesus for your joy, and you're saying, Well, until I understand this, I'm going to kind of keep it at arm's length. Friends, you will never understand, uh, you will never experience real joy, real delight until there's surrender. You will never experience real triumph over your conflict in surrendering until you actually surrender. Right? Um, marriage is like that having the decision to have children is like that. There's a lot of fear and doubt, uncertainties. A lot of us stay single because what we're saying is, until I understand everything I need to know about this person. Friends, you're never going to understand everything. You're never going to understand everything even after you're married. right? You're still figuring that person out. Until, if you wait till that, you're never, you're, you're never going to be able to experience the real delights and real joys. I'll say it this way. The real delights the real joys in your life you'll never be able to fully reason it out fully fully articulate and reason it out until you commit once that commitment is made then the delight and the certainty and the assurance and the joy and the pleasure and the safety and the security then it'll be there you understand you'll never feel fulfillment until after their surrender what does that mean? The Christian life is not about obeying because it fulfills you. Listen, I'm a pastor. I'm telling you right now, I'm not here because it's such a fulfilling job, right? I'm definitely not here because it always is so fulfilling and it always feels so good and so great. If you knew me over the last two years, you'll know it wasn't always great. In fact, I was tempted to walk away at times. It was so difficult and so hard. The Christian life is not, you are, you are not here because it fulfills you. That's not always going to be the case. You're here because it's real. You're here because it's true. And once you surrender, then there's joy. Then there's delight. Then you're going to sing. You see? That leads to the song. That's the last point. We're going to say just a little bit about this and i are going to wind down here. Just a little bit about the Magnificat. That's Mary's song from 40, verse 46 and on. Mary's song begins a little bit about me. She says, me, my, 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 me. She says that about three or four times. And then the rest of it is about he, and he, and he, and he, and he. That's what you see, okay? Mary now knows that she's going to be an inspiration for all generations, an inspiration to everyone. Protestants, they need to see that, right? We're still talking about Mary's story today, this poor, uneducated, illiterate woman, right? We're still telling her story today. But in verse 47, she says, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Even Mary knows that she needs salvation because she is a sinner like everyone else. Catholics, they need to see that. God didn't choose Mary because she was special, right? So, uh, If you don't recognize that, by the way, there's no song. If you don't recognize that I am a sinner, I need the Savior, there will never be a song in your life. Mary sings. Mary sings. She says, my soul, my spirit. By the way, she's not separating her soul and spirit. She's not dichotomizing between the two. This is Hebrew poetry. That means both lines in the same stanza, they're the same. They mean the same thing. They're just an elaboration of the same truth. What she's saying is this. What Mary's saying is my core, my center has been shaken to the depths by God, by his mindfulness for me, by his thoughtfulness of me, by his love for me. That's why she's singing. That's what she's, she gets it. She says, how can God love me and be so faithful that he would give me a savior? That's what she's singing about. She's delighting in this. She looks to the reality of the king who has come down for her too, for her. And she says, I'm going to surrender to this greatness that has come down. Mary's saying, greatness has come down so that I, I'm a nobody. Who am I? But God is mindful of me. Now me, I'm even more of a nobody because of this. But I have become truly great. This this should be our song. We have become truly great there's the validation that you need there's the love that you're looking for there's the approval that you're looking for all your life my god delights in me my god is doting on me the holy spirit has come upon you that's what that's what the angel says right and then the song the rest of those verses he has done this he has done this he has done this he has done this, he has done this. she turns to jesus She gets it because she gets it. It's it's not about me. It's about he. Mark chapter 1, this is what she's saying. Mark chapter 1, you have Jesus. Jesus is being baptized. And what happens? As he's being baptized, heaven opens up. And the Holy Spirit comes down on Jesus too, upon Jesus. And God says, this is my son whom I love. What God is saying is, this is my son whom I favor. This is my son. He's doting on his son. There he blesses his son. He's doting on his son. Jesus Christ is the son of God, but later on, now he's older. He's in Gethsemane, in the garden of Gethsemane, and he's praying. Like Mary, he's praying. And what does he say? My soul is overwhelmed with trouble. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Now there's fear, you see. And what does he pray, Father? Luke chapter 22. Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. In other words, the, the cup that he's talking about is the cup of God's wrath, the penalty for all our sins. He says, "Take this cup from me. It is it is death to drink this cup. Take this cup from me. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow." He's experiencing that moment, everything that he would endure on the cross, and he says, wow, this is overwhelming. The Bible writes says that it's almost as if drops of blood were dripping like sweat from from uh, from his brain, from his heart, from his head, right? And yet he says, not my will, but yours be done. In other words, what he's saying is, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Mary had the courage to endure. Mary had the courage to suffer. Mary had the courage to see this through. Why? Mary had the courage to be faithful. Why? Because she points to one who is far greater than herself. She knows, she doesn't know everything that's going to happen, right? She doesn't know everything that's going to happen, but Jesus Jesus knew everything that's going to happen. Jesus at Gethsemane knew what would happen. And how does he respond? Jesus processed. There was humble honesty. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow. There's humble honesty. Lord, take this cup from me. Right? He's praying. Jesus is with his disciples. He's with community. And yet they abandoned him. They're they're falling asleep while they're praying. Right? Jesus Jesus surrenders. Not my will, but yours be done. Ultimate suffering. Ultimate suffering. My soul's overwhelmed to the point of death. Mary says, my soul, my soul is rejoicing. Jesus says, my soul is overwhelmed. Mary got the joy. Mary got the blessing because Jesus got the pain and Jesus got the cross. And Jesus got the suffering. Why? It's not just about physical pain. It's not about the emotional abandonment. It's not about the loss of friends and the rejection. It's because he knew that God himself would forsake him, and he understood the cost, and he understood the cross, and he understood the suffering, and he understood the loss, and yet it was worth it for him. In fact, Isaiah 53 says it was his joy. Hebrews says, the author of Hebrews says, for the joy that was set before him, he did this. And on the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what he's saying there, you know, Mary, she risked abandonment. Mary risked losing Joseph, risked losing the union with the one she loves. Jesus suffered ultimate cosmic abandonment, ultimate loss. And on the cross when he says, my God, my God, you have forsaken me, what he's saying is I have lost my ultimate love, my ultimate community, my ultimate lifeline. I've truly been left for dead. I've been outcast. That's why Jesus Christ, when he was crucified, he was crucified outside of the city. He was cast out from the holy city. You see? Mary received the blessing in all this. Jesus Christ received the curse. Jesus Christ paid the penalty of all our sins. That means he got everything that we deserved so that we could receive everything that he deserved. Mary was blessed Jesus Christ became accursed. Why? May we receive the presence of God, the face of God. You know the benediction, right? May the Lord be gracious to you. Make his face shine upon you, right? That's the beatific blessing, the face of God, which is a blessing. Jesus says, I've been forsaken. God has turned his way, his face away from me. I am cursed. Why? So that we would be blessed we would have the Holy Spirit. That's what Mary received. Nothing special about Mary. She received what we can receive. Because on the cross, the Lord turned His face and rejected Jesus with ultimate shame, ultimate disgrace, the ultimate curse, the ultimate loss. Jesus Christ, the King, came down, and then He descended to the depths for our sins so that we could ascend to the heights i'm going to close very simple lesson you know because we're running out of time and i had more okay you can put your guard down when you get it When you get the gospel it leads to intimate relationships because there's no more pride and there's no more fear and you can admit things about yourself that you haven't been able to admit the deep things that you haven't been able to admit That means you you can can put your guard down, that people you can descend, and that makes you winsome. It also gives us, so it gives you intimacy. It gives you the possibility of genuine intimacy, but it also gives you genuine comfort. If the Holy One became weak and suffered, no one's going to understand your suffering more than God. No one's going to understand where you are. You feel rejected. You feel at a loss. You feel like you lost blessing. You feel cursed. No one understands what it means to be cursed more than Jesus. And he understands. And he knows. And he suffered not to just suffer with you. He suffered for you. That means he is with you. The Holy Spirit's presence is with you. That means that your suffering has meaning and that God is king. And if God is king and your suffering has meaning, there must be a reason. There must be a reason. So like Mary, we process. We're called to process. Come with humble honesty. See that? That leads to a trust. Share it in community, in the context of community, and surrender. Go to God with everything. That's prayer. Trust God with everything. That's surrender and sacrifice. This is the meaning of Christmas, friends until we actually get to Christmas. We're going to talk about the meaning of Christmas again and again and again. Let's pray together.